0: I'm Josh Lane and welcome to the On Leadership Podcast. This is a one-on-one interview podcast with leaders in the United States Coast Guard. We discuss their unique and diverse backgrounds and find out what experiences shape their personal philosophy and psychology and how that impacts their leadership style. On this episode, I sit down with Lieutenant Junior Grade Jason Raymond. Mr. Raymond has been in the Coast Guard for over 15 years and has experience both as an enlisted member and currently as a response officer. He served at multiple air stations as an avionics electrical technician and is incredibly experienced in the world of search and rescue, command center operations, pollution and hazmat response, and so much more. Uh, Before we get started, I just wanna say a special thank you to Mr. Raymond for this uh, incredibly open and honest conversation that we had. Uh, We get into some really personal stories about his background with his family, uh, why he has a different last name than his biological father, his struggles with alcoholism and how he found sobriety.
1: You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can talk about why people don't drink anymore, what makes them successful in the program. Ultimately, what has happened for me is that since that moment and rehab and that whole culminating event, I have never had a desire to drink again that was greater than my desire to not drink and go back to that.
0: His story is full of personal leadership lessons, uh, how he manages resiliency, uh, the importance of having strong community and network and family. Um, It was really just an honor to sit down and and talk with him. I'm so, so thankful that he shared his story with me on this platform. So I hope you all get as much out of it as, as I did. And before we get started, if anyone is listening to this and is struggling with alcoholism or any other type of addiction, please know that there is always help. You can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services hotline at 1-800-622-HELP or 1-800-622-4357. Again, if you're struggling with alcoholism or addiction, you are not alone. There is always help. It is just a phone call away. So without any further delay, I give you my conversation with Lieutenant Junior Grade Jason Raymond. All right. Well, thanks for doing this, sir. Um, I appreciate it. So... Uh, let's go ahead and get started. So the, uh, first thing I want to know, uh, where and when were you born?
1: I was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1986, October of
0: 1986.
1: In, in be more be more.
0: Okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. I should say, um, for the audience that, uh, uh Mr. Raymond, you are, uh, one of the officers in the incident management division where I work at. yeah, I guess we I should do at. that. Yeah, we should do so. I will, so pro- I will likely do some introduction before this, but we could do this for, for context if you want, don't mind.
1: So I'm a Lieutenant Junior Grade with the Coast Guard. I work in the incident management division. Uh, we respond to oil spill, pollution, cleanup efforts uh, and prevention. And I work with Josh Lane as one of the supervisors of the division.
0: Yeah, so uh, you are, how long have you been in the Coast Guard?
1: Sixteen years, I just hit sixteen years last
0: week. Six so you're 16 years and you are a lieutenant junior grade, so that math doesn't add up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, tell, so you make up a even smaller part of the Coast Guard, which is uh, mustang. Is that,
1: that is uh, a geriatric age, but very young in rank. <laughs> that is correct.
0: Can you explain uh, how that works?
1: So I enlisted in the Coast Guard in 2006. When I came in, I was an avionics electrical technician. So I started out fixing helicopters and flying search and rescue. It wasn't until like the 10-year mark when I really decided that I needed to figure out what I was going to do. I didn't realize, you know, your head down and you're moving forward, like how much time had elapsed. And then I realized I was halfway to being retirement eligible with no solid plan for what I wanted in the end. So it was at that time that I changed kind of my perceptions and decided to go the officer route pursue that uh, commission i started going to college making myself eligible and meeting all the prerequisites to apply and then i applied and got picked up when i had 13 years in service so at this point i'm an e5 second class petty officer i was testing for e6 13 years of service pretty senior in my in my world at the time um, on the hangar deck but then I got picked up and became an ensign or an 01 after commissioning. So now I'm, you can find me 32 years old and the lowest ranking officer at the base, essentially when I showed up, but also one of the older ones in similar age to most of the senior leadership.
0: Awesome. Okay. So we will definitely come back to this fact. Uh, yeah, let's because, table that. Because I think there is a, there's a lot of perspective to be gained, um, from, uh, must mustangs like yourself um and there's a lot of things as far as uh, you know leadership philosophy and psychology that we can learn um from your very particular point of view that you have perspective that you have
1: this is for non-coast guard personnel as well right should I mean, we explain what a mustang is yeah. essentially it just means that i was enlisted so when you become an officer there's a few different routes you can go you can go the traditional academy route you go for four years right out of high school and you graduate as an officer you can come in from the civilian world. If you have a degree that's desirable by the service, and that's another accession source where you become an officer right away. If you're prior enlisted and you switch over, you, you go from sort of the bottom ranks into the wardroom. That's where the Mustang title comes from. You're kind of, you know, that sort of workhorse from the, the service.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, okay. So let's go back, uh, Baltimore. You, uh, do you grow up there?
1: Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. So I was there until I left for the Coast Guard at 19. So I spent my entire childhood there. We moved around a little bit. My parents got divorced when I was 11. And we moved from like city proper to county. And then we moved from county to like Anne Arundel County and like no longer Baltimore at all. Okay. Um, But I still claim Baltimore because respect. (laughs) Okay. What, I lived in Inronal County, but I still, you know, at that point, I'm driving. I'm still going to the city. I'm still hanging out in the city. That's all I knew.
0: What did your parents do?
1: My mom worked for a bank. She wasn't a banker. She worked at their headquarters. Um, I think it used to be called First National. It's M and T Bank now. They're they're smaller. They're regional. Um, she's been with them forever. She's like that old social contract belief. You know, she's going to do her thirty and get a watch. Yeah. She's like twenty something years in. And my biological father, um, he worked for Cisco Manufacturing. He worked; he was an, a night shift worker in their warehouse. He did like supply uh, stocking, truck stocking type stuff.
0: Okay. So, can you explain this? So, you're saying you, you, bio, you have a biological father, but you have identified him as such. So, do you have another person uh, in your life that you consider more of a father figure?
1: I do. So, I... I dropped in there that my parents got divorced when I was 11. That's mm-hmm. when I moved to the county. Um, so, that sort of fallout that came from that. There, and there's things that you don't know when you're a kid. You just you just know your parents are getting divorced. My brother was two and I'm 11. And they just said, this is what's happening. And it kind of goes as such. Um, later, I would learn that there's this whole backstory and years of discontent and, you know, sort of anger on both parts. But... I just knew that it didn't work and they were going their separate ways and so we moved and he, the reason I use that term and don't really give him much more credit than that is uh, at that point at 11, when they got divorced, there was a brief period of like the normal sort of family separated sort of structure where we had visitation and he could see us on Wednesdays and weekends and, you know, alternating weekends. And I don't remember exactly what the timeline was, but shortly after those arrangements were set up, he left. So, he's not from the country. He's uh, originally from Trinidad and Tobago. He was naturalized, joined the service, joined the army when he got here so he could expedite his naturalization and citizenship. So, as soon as that process, you know, unfolds and my parents split, he's doing his visitation for a little bit. And then he just, I guess, figures it's not for him. And he just pieces out and goes back to Trinidad. Really? So, he's out of the picture. I mean, we had absolutely no comms. I think the first bout was seven years. Six okay. years, maybe, before I heard from him again. Oh. Just completely dark comms. No uh, no communications with him at all. No, you know, I still hold this resentment, but no birthday cards, no phone calls, nothing. Well, just left.
0: <clears throat> what did he reach back out for?
1: He came back to the States. So, okay. we we didn't actually know what had happened we just knew that he didn't show up for visitation which was unlike him he was usually early and then tried to drop us off late and that was a whole point of contention but he didn't show up i think it was a wednesday it was a midweek one he didn't show up for and my mom was kind of taken back by that she reached out to some people nothing so we went and drove by his house if i remember correctly i think his car was there uh, but he wasn't. And we ended up getting in touch with his neighbor who coincidentally was also from Trinidad. They were like friends, just small world. Um, and they were like, oh no, he left. He went back to Trinidad. And so my mom starts looking into it. She obviously, this is without me knowing the time, but she realizes that she needs to look into this. And he had like wiped out accounts, he liquidated a bunch of stuff. They, it was like overnight, he was gone. And so then there's just old no trace are, of old him. How old were
0: you when this happened? So
1: I'm 11 okay. at the time. My, my youngest brother's two, oh, my only brother, he's two. And so she figures out, this is how she figures out. And again, I, I don't know the timeline specifically, but in kind of investigating this, she figures out like, oh, wow, like he's liquidated everything. Like there's nothing. Whatever was shared between them was gone. And so, he just goes back to Trinidad and there's no communication. Um, and the next time we would hear from him is, it, I think it's about six years, and he cold called me. He cold called the house. I answered and he told me it was him. And we talked for a little bit and I was like, wow, it's really weird you would call. And I guess maybe he was like feeling it out and getting my temperature, but I remember it being well into the conversation when he had said he was back and the reason i think he was kind of secretive about that is because then there's this whole you know he's got child support that he didn't pay for that whole time he's now like at risk for losing his license and he's some crazy number of debt in debt to my mom so he's just like i'm back don't tell your mom like now i got like the secret
0: do you know why he came back
1: i have no idea i mean i think there's what he says uh but then there's what he does, you know? Like he said yeah. that it was us, it was my brother and I, but that was not the first stretch of like excommunication with him, mm-hmm. it's it's a pattern. So I don't know how serious that is, or maybe it's not, maybe we have different perceptions of what's important, but he said it was because of my brother and I, but he didn't really see us, you know, in and that return.
0: <clears throat> and you don't have any relationship with him now? I
1: have recently, rekindled and that's a very generous term Uh, i reached out to him a few years ago when i was having my first son and i basically set the parameters for the relationship i set up boundaries and i said this is this is where i'm at i'm moving around the country we have a kid you deserve to know your grandfather Uh, we can talk we can exchange pleasantries Um, we can do video chats i'll send you pictures And that's about it for now. And I I kind of established those boundaries up front and that's been going for like three years. But I mean, we'll go, we'll go like six months and he'll be like, I haven't seen a picture of your son in a while. And I'll be like, oh yeah, we had a second kid. Like that's the extent of the relationship. Like it's somewhat laborious, I feel like on my part.
0: Okay. So, uh, but you, you initiated the, the newest contact and it was, it was out of wanting a relationship for your son or at least your son to know his biological grandfather. I mean what what sort of was the motivation? That was it?
1: actually full disclosure. That was like subordinate. It was actually out of my recovery program. Like he was a loose end. So selfishly um selfishly I needed to close that book for my own mm-hmm. like adult life and recovery and to move on. Mm-hmm. And just sort of accept whatever the relationship's going to be. So I'm like, I don't care that we're not going to do soccer games on the weekend, and you know, I'm, I miss the opportunity to sit in your lap and drive. But I need to at least close the book and be okay with where we're at. Um, morbidly, I actually told myself, like, if I got a phone call that my father died, what would I think? Yeah. And I felt a little bit of like ambiguity, and I didn't like that. So I was like, I at least want to be at peace with the fact that like, if that were to happen. I would feel okay with where we were. Yeah. So I established that communication. Honestly, it was for me initially, but having a kid and him being a grandfather was sort of a second pillar to that. I think that really pushed me over the edge to where I was like, I have to do this soon. And I have to like kind of get him in the loop before in a timely manner. Um, but it was a lingering thing for me. I mean, this is something that's years in the making for me, figuring out how I'm gonna navigate that. And I think maybe my kid became like the catalyst of like, okay, here we go. This is, this makes sense.
0: I I should say, we'll, we'll dig into the sobriety conversation a little bit, but you did mention this mental model that you had, right? Like imagining if this person was suddenly gone, how would I feel about it? Where did, where did that come from? Is that something that you just thought, thought of yourself? I mean, it was this something out of recovery as well.
1: I feel like the idea was original to me, but. Not that it's an original thought. I feel like it comes out of, like, concepts of the program. Like, we, you know, in, in my recovery, I've I spent time thinking about my own life. I've had some reflection on where I'm at, where I was at in my, when I was actively, you know, in alcoholism. And there, it, it's a little morbid, I think, but it it's, it's as morbid as it needs to be to get the point across, yeah. if that makes sense. So, yeah, I have these 100%. sort of self-reflections of, like, you know, it's the... I, I, Jokingly, I say everybody does it. I don't think everybody does it, but I think that's the one of the crutches of being an alcoholic. You're just like, everybody does this. Um <laughs> they don't. But it's one of those things where you're like, Yeah, I imagine my funeral and you're like, what would people say? And then you're like, Well, shit, maybe I should do better because right. I don't I don't really like what was said, or I don't like who showed up, right? Maybe I right. should be better to people and stop avoiding or stop, you know, like stop introverting as much. And I think it came from one of those sort mm-hmm. of trains of thoughts of like imagining the end. And deciding whether or not you're happy with that. And recognizing that you're at a position now to change that. Yeah. And I I had done that with myself on my own life sort of path. And I think it was easy to think, realistically, this is something that my my parents are older now. And this is something that could happen. So, it was an easy thought. Not an easy thought, but it was an easy sort of synopsis to say, what would the end look like? And would I be happy with that?
0: There's a ton of... I guess it would be stoic philosophy that um, AA programs use. I mean, the the Lord's Prayer, right, which is a, a cornerstone to most AA programs, is essentially a stoic reminder of things that you can and can't control and how you should react to that. Um, but it's also, the program teaches you to be introspective, right? If anything, it teaches you to step outside of yourself and, and examine yourself from the outside. What do you actually look, look like, you know? And I think that there's a lot of crossover in Stoic philosophy and with AA program, but you know, you talk about it being as morbid as it has to be, right? And that's another thing within Stoicism where it's important to contemplate your own death, right? Because everything is temporary. Everything is short. You have a limited amount of time to do good things here. And so thinking about the end and thinking about the way you would feel if you were present for those types of things. I mean, I think that's uh, super powerful, like incredibly powerful. Um, and yeah, we'll-
1: it's, it's, it's very motivating. And and I like I said, it's, I think as an alcoholic, I'm like, everybody does that, right? Like everybody has that recurring dream of like, oh, I died and who showed up at my funeral? They don't, but I do think that it's very motivating. And I think in alcoholism and in in substance use, things have to be severe, right? Like Mm -hmm. everything is life or death, Mm -hmm. essentially. If it's not, then you don't really consider yourself in the throes of alcoholism. You're just a binge drinker or a partier, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of where that mindset comes in of like, all or nothing. Like, what's his relationship like? What's it like if he's dead?
0: So we'll come back to that because I want to loop back to, to hear how you got to, uh, into uh, a sobriety program. But tell me who your father is that you consider your fa- father um, and what your relationship was like growing up with him. Okay.
1: Yeah. So that's uh we're at about 11 here. Um, and, and like I said, my biological Father goes back to Trinidad. That's where all his family is. He's the only one that came to the States. It was to meet my mom. Fun story. They were pen pals. So it is like this true romance, but I guess in the nature of today's world, even that, that doesn't live forever. (laughs) But um, in, in sort of true fashion for irony, my mom meets my stepdad at a divorce group. Um, (laughs) So there we are.
0: Uh, is that what they're designed to do that's
1: I think that's <laughs> the plan I think it's like aA where like you meet friends and you have a new network of right. people and you're like these people are like-minded we're gonna hang out and not drink together and here's like a bunch of divorced people who' are like we're gonna hang out and not be married together but my parents were like maybe we should do this right um, I don't know <laughs> so um so and I should say I, it's worth noting um my biological father he I ser- he served in the army he did his tour. Got his citizenship, fast-tracked everything like he wanted, and then he got out. My stepdad, you know, and here we are in divorce counseling. I'm not present, but my mom in divorce counseling, she meets him. At the time, he's about 26 years Army as well. Um, Sergeant Major. He works at Fort Meade, so he's in the Baltimore area. So, you know, in terms of locale, that's how they came to be. Um, Lives on base. And so, they start dating, and you know that just transpires to be this what it is today they're still together today retired in Delaware but um another significant military influence on my life that relationship did not come without hardships be- because of me 100% like he's an excellent person and uh a lot of people don't know this especially since I switched over to the officer world because it kind of timed out but I'm actually it's actually his last name so my birth Raymond name is
0: his last name. His
1: name is Raymond Charles okay. Raymond. My birth name is Jason Muhammad. Oh, so my wow. father's from Trinidad, um, so I have that that lineage. Uh, when I was having my firstborn child, I did not want that name for various reasons, um, largely because I knew he wasn't ever going to intimately know who is grandfather was mm-hmm. and so i was like well it doesn't make sense that he has to explain this to people right and in a post nine eleven world i find myself explaining that a lot even like a decade uh, later yeah so i was like well i don't want my children to have to deal with the last name muhammad and they don't even know the guy right. that gave us that name i did so it was an easy discussion so i talked to my stepdad and i had you know i was like i could have used my mother's maiden name or my stepdads. And I just felt compelled to go that route because he had raised me. I didn't have that paternal connection with my grandparents. I actually didn't know them either until I was older. So it kind of made the most sense to me by default to be a Raymond, like my stepdad. And he was, you know, over the moon. He just couldn't believe that I even would consider. And that's what ended up happening. So I'm Jason Raymond now um as a testament to that relationship right like i i ran away one time i threatened to call the cops on him we became pretty close to fights, and now i bear his last name and i'm trying to carry on his his lineage do
0: you think that's just uh like teen angst um i mean 100 you-
1: yeah i mean i was i was just just i fit that mold you know i i just Parents were divorced. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to be a statistic so bad. Like parents were divorced. I was a skateboarder. I was barely graduating school. Like I wanted all of the things that could work against me to work against me, but I wanted to do so so that I could outwardly project a certain right. you know demeanor. Like I'm yeah. you know screw everybody, right? Yeah. You don't know what's best for me. I do, and I don't need to. <laughs> I don't need to go to school.
0: Yeah, we uh, we would have been fast friends in, uh, in yeah. school. There's,
1: there's no reason for me to take english literature classes to be a professional skateboarder it's just it doesn't fit the mold you know and there's nobody's no sponsorship is ever going to expect me to be able to know the pythagorean theorem and i just felt like i really believed that i was going to be a professional skateboarder
0: when you replace tony hawk they're not going to ask you for nobody
1: gives a shit <laughs> so what was your gpa in high school i didn't go well but you know what, We don't want you at this year's X Games, right?
0: Like <laughs> that kickflip <cake> solid <laughs> though. <laughs> so Baltimore, Baltimore has a reputation. Um, it's a reputation for being a rough city, right? And you're growing up a rough kid. Uh, do you think that that had some influence on, you know, your later psychology or the, the way that you grew up, the way that you think, do you think all of those formative years have a way that, uh, to shape the way you think now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I I would never, you know, I can only speak to myself, but I think it's human nature that you spend so much time immersed in some, some type of culture, whether it's A or B or whatever it may be, it will influence you. Right. And you do it in those formative years where I'm 11 years old and, and then I'm 13, 14 years old, taking the subway down to Baltimore to ride my skateboard. And you're just, you just feel like you're just doing your own thing. But it shapes who you are i think a lot of that too you talked about baltimore having this perception and i know it to be true i I know it from an an outside perspective now that i'm older and i go back and visit when you're in it it's just home right you you hear the you hear the statistics but when you're in it you're just like yeah you just don't go down that street right that's common sense when you're older and you go back you're like wow this is a rough place but i think there was a lot of me trying to portray that also like that. I, I think that made my teenage angst worse because I was like, I was trying to, you know, fit into the mold that I thought I needed to be in, to be tough, to be in Baltimore. Baltimore, Right. Like nobody can tell me nothing. Like, you know, so, you know, I, I grow up in that. Um, even when I moved out, I still had this sort of persona that like, you know, streets raised me. It's Baltimore. Like, that's what you say. I still say it. Streets didn't raise me. I recognize that today, but, um, it definitely shaped who I was. And I think there's a lot of stuff, even in my adult life now that still exists because of that time. You know, I'm not, I'm not the stubborn, you know, kid that I was, and I don't have that sort of F you mentality to everyone, but I do still have a lot of introversion i do still keep to myself a lot i do still have a certain persona persona when i walk down the street like things that i learned in baltimore that i people will point out in me like there's certain things i do when you get into an elevator there's certain things i do when i walk Mm. down a crowded street Mm. that i don't realize i do but i do them because of baltimore and you don't you know like even in you know just general communication skills we didn't really talk maybe it's generational too but not just baltimore but we didn't talk about a lot of stuff. Nobody's really, you know, checking in with their friends to see how you're feeling. And a lot of that still exists today. Like, that's a that takes effort on my part because I didn't grow up in it's that a environment. Lack, a lack
0: of depth within, like, yeah, friendships. Exactly. Well, You, you said that um, introversion was a product of growing up in Baltimore. Did I get that right? Or do you think it was a, was, was a useful a, characteristic of your personality?
1: I think it's me. Yeah. I don't think that's a product of Baltimore. I have friends from that that era that are not like me at all, very boisterous and, you know, walk into a room and make friends with everyone. Um, I think that, is always been, that has always been something that I sort of default to, is like maybe a protective measure yeah. or something that I sort of shield myself with. It's something that's also become more exaggerated in recovery. So one of the things I learned about myself, it, I would never have described myself as that nine years ago. I was the life of the party. Yeah. But I was also the heaviest drinker at the party. Yeah. I didn't realize until the deep reflection in recovery that I was working so hard to be something. Introversion kind of came as a product of removing that social stimulant and saying, well, who am I really? Like, you know, I'm not the guy who walks into a room and demands that everyone listens to what I have to say. Yeah. Um, You know, I still enjoy interaction and human connection but at a different level a deeper level than that sort of superficial like let me just walk in the room and see how many people i can make laugh at me yeah. or how many people i can get to be like this guy's wild
0: yeah um okay so let's so let's get there um let's talk about it you showed me your coin for nine years sober is that was that right it's nine years it's the eight year coin eight year coin. nine years coming up but. okay so mm. eight years sober so what happened what happened to make you change eight years ago? What were all the th- steps that led up to it? And and how did you get to where you are today?
1: Okay. So, so I'm in the coast guard for context. Um, I came in, I'm 19 now. Um, it's party. Like I have a regular paycheck. Now I moved to a different, I moved to Florida. I had never been to Florida from Baltimore. It's like, wow, this is crazy. It's 90 degrees all year you can go to the beach in january what What part of florida are you in so tampa bay okay i was stationed in clearwater and so there i am you know i came in at 19 now i'm in my early 20s um by the time i get out of a school and everything i think i'm like tw- uh 21 22 in florida with a regular paycheck Compl- everyone's out of my hair my parents are out of the picture and it's just a party i just felt like hey like let's just get together let's hang out right and i think the coast guard they didn't, breed that environment, but I think it just sort of the environment created itself by having a bunch of young people from all different places in the country come together. And there's only a handful of ways you can get to know each other and house parties is one of them.
0: But also I will just say one of the mottos that you hear a lot is work hard, play hard. I mean you hear that all the time. And within play hard, there are certain behaviors <laughs> that are norms, right? And Definitely. and I think one of those, which we have been talking about as a service for years, is is the amount of drinking. So no. but I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I, I agree. I, I don't think, I, I don't want to say the service promotes heavy drinking. They don't. They, you know, their policy is in place. You can read what the policy says. They don't promote heavy drinking. I think the environment sort of fosters heavy drinking and it's just kind of the human nature aspect of it. Like mm-hmm. there's, it is a social lubricant. It makes people more whatever they want to be, whatever they choose to be. And there I was in that environment, just drinking with all the people that were, you know, in their 20s. Um, It's the military. So, of course, there are a handful of guys who are like 20, 21, and they just got married and they're working on having their first kid because military relationships happen overnight. But by and large, you've got maybe 15 to 20 of us who are on the weekends, we're all hanging out, house parties, apartment parties, whatever it may be. And so, I sort of found what fit For a little while and and i was the party guy i also found that i liked sort of being like the the all or nothing crazy guy you wouldn't believe what you did last night or i can't believe you did this and you know like i was saying like you just i went out of my way to have like the craziest stories i think that's coupled with the skateboarding background and the baltimore like you got to be all in and so, I, I do that for years. Um, my This is my first assignment, my first major assignment. I'm in Clearwater. And it's just party city all year. And then I'm going to Alaska. So, significant geographical change. Um, I'm leaving Florida where all my relationships are, you know, friends, bar relationships, downtown relationships. And I just decided like, you know, I got to party with these guys before I leave. We got to tie one on and so I have like just a few months of just straight up it's a debacle like it's just drunken debacle I'm making it to work I'm balancing like two full-time jobs drinking at this point I realize this now and work and I think there's this thing that I did at least I can't say all alcoholics but like nobody at work would ever have suspected like I had to go above and beyond I put in a lot more energy mm-hmm. to be like a really good coastie because like
0: Overcompensated to a certain degree.
1: Right. Because I knew I was coming in hungover on Mondays. Like I knew I was going to be worthless for like an hour or so. But I was also going to stay two or three hours late and do the job and excel because that's what you needed. And so you kind of hide those like lagging mornings with, you know, overcompensating. And so, I'm, I'm kind of balancing these two careers, especially in the end of that last tour where it had really reached its sort of pinnacle because I'm like, I know everybody I'm going to know. Relationships are now coming to an end. We're trying to, you know, celebrate, quote unquote. And I go to Alaska. So, now I find myself in a whole new place and I thought I was going to dry out. You know, Alaska is going to be a great place for me to like kind of get my act together. There's nobody there that's going to be like as crazy as me.
0: This is Kodiak?
1: Sika Sica. So, okay. I, I'm going to Sica, Alaska. Uh, <laughs> which if you've ever been to Alaska, that's, you don't dry out. Like people just drink, uh, <laughs> basically. It's, it's a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. So in my head, I'm going to go to Alaska. I remember saying I was going to go to Alaska. There's not going to be a lot to do. So I'm going to enroll in college, probably start hitting the gym. Cause I put on a little bit of weight from, you know, eating Taco Bell most nights of the week at like 2am drinking. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to get in the gym. I'm going to start some college. I could probably finish my associates in the two years that I'm there i'm just gonna dry out from this whole drinking thing and then i got there and i realized that there's like three bars in town and everybody hangs out at two of them and you can just figure out what happened from there it was like cool well this is the scene this is where everybody goes and then my first alaskan winter hits just off the deep end like something did it just completely new to me like now it turned into like can't wait to get off work to drink. The sun is gone by the time I get off work. It it was out for a little bit at lunchtime. And then I get off at three and the sun's gone. So I'm miserable. Uh, I think probably suffering from like lack of vitamin D, uh, depression, like seasonal effectiveness disorder, all of those things compounded. And I get off work and I don't know what else to do. So I'm like, I'm drinking now at three in the afternoon, which I never used to do, because it would be Florida and it's nice out. and, And that first winter just it put me over the top. Like I, whatever, you know, you can, shoulda, coulda, woulda, whatever chance I had was gone at that point. I was long gone in terms of drinking. My body was dependent on it at that point. Um, I had an emotional attachment. Like it, it was necessary for the way I was gonna feel. And so I, I come out of that and um, sort of the, the culminating event is I'm, I'm going on vacation with my girlfriend. We maintain a long distance relationship. We had met in Florida. And we were going to meet in LA and I was like, yeah, you need to take a break. I need to dry out. Like this is really starting to hurt physical, you know, effects now.
0: Are Um, are you still managing to separate your drinking from your other work obligations at this point? Absolutely.
1: Because when you start drinking at like three or four in the afternoon and you're blacked out and in in bed before 10 o'clock, now all of a sudden it makes perfect sense because- i'm getting a full night's sleep yeah like this is new to me i'm not staying up till two or three in the morning and going to work at six i'm in bed by like 10 o'clock passed out and like waking up the next morning like before my alarm clock because my body's like dude you got to get up and i'm like this is crazy like it's it's just crazy what was going on more crazy what i was rationalizing at that time like you know whatever i can get by and so my girlfriend's coming from Florida. We're long distance. We're meeting in LA. I decided that I needed to dry out. I was having some physical issues, um, you know, with my body. I had just my doctor had just recently given me some bad news um regarding my health. I guess one of the one of the other things that led to that decision is this is around the time that I'm doing my annual physical, and I would be 25 at the time. And the doctor says, if you don't change anything. I'll give you until 35 before you have your first heart attack.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: And so I'm 25 years old and I'm sitting across it and I'm like, dude, come on, really? Like, I'm pretty healthy. Like, you know, I, I get by. Um, that was kind of a warning that I didn't really heed. But then later I was like, wow, like it's really impressive. And I'm thankful that I got my life turned around.
0: Was, was that a direct result from drinking?
1: Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, it was because it was drinking. It was diet. My, my cholesterol was through the roof. Uh, my triglycerides were like double if not three times what they should have been like i was just like physically i looked a certain way like i had like recessed you know you know eye indents from sleeping issues um my face was puffy from water retention but like you would look at me and think like yeah he gets by whatever you know he's he's not gonna run from here to there but he gets by (laughs) but he's like, like internally my body was on the brink of something you know like not good Cause he did my blood work and my labs. And he was like, we need to follow up your lab work in six months. And so kind of took the warning. I was like, Oh, I need to clean up a little bit. So I took a a little bit of time off from drinking. I think it was like 10 days before this trip to LA. I meet my wife. Well, she's my girlfriend at the time, but I meet my girlfriend down there. We get together with some friends, we buy some booze. And then I just start tying one on. Like, I'm just yeah. like, it's party time. Like I just dried out for 10 days. It's time to go. That's, there were conversations that were had between her and I, obviously I got drunk, I was an idiot, and that is what prompted the serious conversation of like, why can't, she said pointedly, why can't you just drink like other people?
0: Because you were out of control, your behavior was just out of control once you got drunk.
1: Wild. Nobody had ever said that to me. Mm -hmm. Nobody had ever asked me that. They had always said, like, dude, you're wild. You're like, nobody else does what you do. Like, whatever. Like, it was always in a context of, like, a cool thing. Or maybe I never heard it the right way, but I heard it loud and clear in that moment. And that that was it. Like, I bawled, just bawling, could not even process what was going on. And the only thing I could tell her was that the the one thing I'm sure of is that when I start drinking, I don't know when I'll stop mm-hmm. and I can't control it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nobody had ever asked me in that way or I never heard it that way and it caught me. And so she's like, what are you going to do about it? Like, you know, like she's my girlfriend. We're long distance. She's got her own life to live. We're in our 20s. She doesn't yeah. want to deal with my shit. She's yeah. like, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> so we actually, with that the rest of that trip was just like, hunker down. Let's just put ourselves up in a hotel room. Um and like kind of just hang out and like figure out some stuff. Let's just try to have some good times, make the most of this. I went back to Alaska from that trip, um, and the first day back to work, I walked into my chief's office and said, "I need help." And he said, "You're here to suffer for aren't you?" And I was like, "Yeah." How'd you know? He's like, "I saw it coming, but I didn't know how long it was going to be." And that was a real eye opener because. I thought I was, here I was doing this whole two career thing and I'm like, I'm trying to excel. And he's like, yeah, you're a great worker. But he's like, the signs are there. Yeah. Like, you know, it was like Monday mornings, you're not going to be worth a damn. There's the random days of leave, like on a Thursday. And it's like, nobody takes Thursdays off. Like, what are you doing? And so here it was, like, I was sort of realizing that people had figured me out long before I did. Yeah. So anyway, I, I go in and I tell them I need help. And I just say, look, like, I don't know what to do i just dried out for a little bit i went and met my girlfriend in la as soon as i started drinking off to the races so go to medical and i'd go through the whole process there's a whole questionnaire uh, this is kind of a humor story that um, when you're filling out this questionnaire it, it's written in a way so that they can kind of figure out what what kind of drink you are how often what's your frequency blackouts and stuff like that and I remember the question was saying, how many times in the last year have you gotten drunk? And then the next question is blackouts. And it, it goes by, you know, a little deeper. Um, and it's like A, one to three, B, you know, four to five. And it goes all the way up to 11 or more. And it's April. I self-referred in April. Um, So, I look at the doctor as I'm filling this out. I'm in his office because they don't want me to go anywhere by myself because they know I'm a mess. I'm crying. I'm crying again because I'm asking for help and I'm like in a very vulnerable state. Mm -hmm. And I look up at him and I say, hey, doc, I got a question. It's asking about getting drunk and like blackouts in the last year. And he's like, what's your question? And I was like, well, it says 11 or more. Is that the last 12 months or is that like the last year to date, like just since April? And he looked at me and was like the fact that you have to ask is concerning and i said actually i just answered my own question because it doesn't change it's 11 or more like either way it's 11 or more yeah (laughs) it didn't matter if it was 12 months or if it was january to april right i was already 11 or more and he's like his whole he's like the fact that you're asking me that like wow i don't even think you need to finish that paper (laughs) I've already diagnosed you. <laughs> and so, you know, at the time I, this is, these are just rationalizations and you don't realize them until later. And you're just like, wow, I can't believe how much I rationalized yeah. my behavior. Yeah, And so from that questionnaire, he's like, yeah, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. You're going straight to rehab. And that, you know, that's where it started. So I, I had a supervisor. I, you know, I couldn't be by myself. Um, my roommate had to come get me. I went home and packed. And I think. The following day, I left on a plane from Alaska, and I was in a rehab that afternoon in San Antonio, Texas. Spent 28 days in rehab, and I, I've, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can talk about why people don't drink anymore, what makes them successful in the program. Ultimately, what has happened for me is that since that moment in rehab and that whole culminating event, I have never had a desire to drink again that was greater than my desire to not drink and go back to that and at the end of the day that's what it comes down to fundamentally i still want to not drink today more than i would ever consider drinking and that's kind of what my program is based on really
0: um you know i've I've shared with you um, that there's alcoholism in my family and i have a family that that has gone to uh, rehab programs one of the things one of the things that strikes me is really interesting with your story is that your rock bottom, right, which is a, a lot of what they talk about in, in AA is people have to reach a certain bottom before they finally ask for help or or before they can finally, you know, be successful in returning. Your rock bottom was somebody that you know, love, and respect very well being like, you need to wake up, Right. And I think that that is, I think that just shows like, you know, how conscientious of a person you are to, to recognize that, um, you know, that's, that's sort of, uh, I think that's one of like the superpowers we have as humans is our ability to communicate like that and to recognize, to be able to to come to instant recognition of a situation that we're involved in just through having a conversation with somebody else to, to point that out, like your behavior is unacceptable and you're going to have to do something about it. And you have such a strong relationship with that person that that scares you, right? Scares you to the point where, holy cow, I need to do something about my behavior. Yeah.
1: That's, that still exists today. Um, You know, I said, I I don't know if other people said it or I don't know if I just didn't hear it from other people the way that I heard it from her, but the way that it came and coming from her, it meant something more like you're saying that still exists today. So spoiler alert, she's now my wife and the mother of two children, our two children. She still has that ability with me. There are times where, you know, I'll get kind of squirrely because of work stress and homework and the two kids and things are going on. And she'll say, when's the last time you talked to your sponsor? When's the last time you went to a meeting? Nice. And it still hits. Nice. Like that still gets me. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, you're right. Like nobody else can say it. And it mean what it means when you say it. Yeah. Just like what she said that day, you know, down in LA. And I'm like, I, I probably heard other people say that. And I probably laughed it off. Cause I'm like, yeah, dude, nobody else. I can't drink like anybody else. It's wild. Right. But when she said it in that context, I was, yeah, there is no right answer.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So tell me what it's like now. I mean, um, just for I think people that aren't familiar with with the program. I mean, what's your what does that look like? I mean, you mentioned that your wife asked you about it. But, but what does it look like as far as, uh, you know, one of the things that I know comes up in uh, AA is that you're an alcoholic now forever that doesn't go away so how do you maintain your sobriety like what are the things uh you know like we've talked about already like things that you've learned things that you've recognized uh you know more introspection from from that so yeah tell us what that looks like as far as like maintaining your sobriety
1: absolutely so there's this sort of belief when you go to those programs when you go into the rooms that you know you're going to be confined to like this law like this life of just sort of this dreary, there is no fun. I just go to these meetings and I do this. And I think a lot of people think that you're going to have to, right? Like you have to go to those meetings or you have to attend these groups. What I have found is that I went when I needed to. And then my life got so good that I really started wanting to go, right? Like in the beginning, I didn't have a choice. I only felt safe inside rooms with like-minded people and so i got out of rehab and i clutched to the recovery groups and then i started getting friends in recovery and i started working a program and i started sort of changing my behaviors and i changed and i wanted to be there those were my friends those were people i loved those were people who helped me when i couldn't help myself and now i had something to provide and now there's this like there's this desire to give back and I want to be present for whoever else comes in and I want to tell them what I did and I want to say, I've been there. Like, I think that's one of the most powerful things about recovery groups is the, the empathy, right? Like nobody can talk to another alcoholic like an alcoholic. I think that's what makes me a great CEDAR. Mm. I'm passionate about the job because can I'm an alcoholic.
0: That, can you say what that is, what a CEDAR is?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. So within the Coast Guard, we have a collateral and it's it's the acronym is CDAR and it stands for the Command, drug and alcohol representative and so that role is to basically keep the command in line with the policy so when somebody gets caught with a drug test failure or dui or if somebody like i did just comes forward and says i need help they go to the CDAR because that person is supposed to be sort of the subject matter expert on the coast guard's policy on substance usage and they help the member in their recovery a CDAR is who i went to and who helped me and I'm a Cedar today. And, and I think that one of the benefits of that is that empathy piece of like being able to relate and saying like, I've been there. You know, I share my story with people so that somebody will say, me too. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I that's relatable. And then maybe something clicks. And so there was a turning point in recovery where I started feeling that way about the rooms and the groups. And I wanted to be there. I didn't just have to go to stay sober. I, I wanted to go. And I still go today. Um. I don't like to tempt fate anymore. You know, I'm not that 16 year old kid jumping off buildings. I I don't want to see how long I can go without a meeting because I know eventually my mind will get a little squirrely. I'll start to race. I might become a little bit temperamental, short fused. Next thing you know, old behaviors start creeping in and I'm yelling at people or I'm starting to become this sort of boisterous, narcissistic character that's not really who I am anymore. It's, it's who I sort of. Try to be to overcompensate. And if I'm going to do that, then I'm probably going to drink too, right? Like I'm going down that path. So I don't like to say, well, let me see how long I can go without a meeting and see how long I can maintain. So I just, I go. I still want to go. My friends are in recovery. Um, My sponsor's in recovery. I've built a life around it so that I still want to be involved. Mm -hmm. And I have not had a desire to drink in nine years, right? And a lot of people that I talk to, that's not their experience. Mm -hmm. You know, some people fight it every day. White, They call white knuckling, where you're just grasping and you just, you want to drink, but you tell yourself, no, it's gonna kill me. That has not been my experience. You know, the closer I stay to that way of life and to helping other people and to remembering where I come from, the further I get from that old behavior and that desire to drink.
0: And part, part of the AA program, correct me if I'm wrong, is about building relationships, exactly like you're saying, but also about giving back, right? So you do have um, sort of this, I, what I don't want to call it an obligation, but there is a, a sort of um, understood responsibility within the community that you help others because you've been helped, right?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the, the steps, what you're referring to is, is like the steps, the program of recovery. Um, and if you're, you know, speaking to AA specifically, the steps of AA end with sharing the message with other alcoholics, right? That's what they call the 12th step. And when you say you're 12th stepping, you're going out and you're working with other people. And there are sayings within the group of like, you can't keep it if you don't give it away. But it's it's predicated on that. Like, you have to do the work and help other people. Otherwise you will not be helping yourself. Mm-hmm. And I I do believe that to be true. Like I find that I'm my best and I think it's true, you know, recovery in the program of recovery and changing my, myself and being a better human being, it's made me better outside of that program too. I think that sort of behavior is true in just society, right? Like I feel best and I am in my best headspace. When I'm trying to help the people in my community mm-hmm. and the people around me, right? Like when I'm my number one priority, I'm just fueled by ego and pride and all of these things. This goes to, we we're talking about leadership philosophies. When my leadership philosophy is founded on making sure that everybody around me has what they need to succeed, all of a sudden I feel way more rewarded. Yeah. I feel way more satisfaction in what I'm doing. That's not my default. That's not Jason, right? <laughs> Jason is still trying to become a pro skateboarder at 35 (laughs) and still doesn't know the Pythagorean theorem, right? Like two things that failed because I put all my eggs in one basket. I could have at least learned algebra, but in the program I've learned like, Hey, you need to help other people in recovery. And that being a a Cedar is one of those things for me. Like it was never a job. It's never collateral. It was an opportunity for me to get more chances to be of service. Like there is an opportunity for me to help other alcoholics in the uniform I'm going to do it mm-hmm. because I feel best when I'm providing something to the society, when I'm providing something to the group or to the whole, just like in leadership, when you're providing everyone around you, you know, you know, you know, the people who are only looking out for number one, you can point them out in a room. Yeah. That's an exhausting place to be. It's not fun. Yeah. It, it is just physically draining. Whereas I get this life of reward, mm-hmm. right? Where, and it, it makes me, I don't, you're not more sober, but it's like, I, so the way I describe it is like, if you were to put, put it on a spectrum and I'm right in the middle, every decision I make is either making me closer to drinking or it's getting me further away, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm on one side of the spectrum those things those behaviors of helping people and giving back i'm just getting further and further from the idea of drinking and i, I like to continue on that yeah. path because that's more rewarding
0: but you're moving towards self-actualization right something, 100%. something that we talk about a lot um
1: that that highest level of existence you know if you're talking about like maslow's hierarchy exactly. like you're, you're at the pinnacle your self-actualization you are just it's the most rewarding place that you can exist
0: so so I do want to tie in one of the really cool things about about being a Mustang is that even though you're junior in rank, you are looked at as somebody who has a ton of experience, right? And so you don't exactly get treated like other people of your pay grade, right? You have a, you you have a lot more knowledge, you have a lot more, you have a, you've had so many years of actually doing the job that you're now overseeing, right? So you have a perspective that other people don't have. And So when you speak, people listen to you, right? People really take your opinion as being something more of a subject matter expert than just somebody who is a junior officer that's in a leadership position. But I think what sort of uh, the Coast Guard gets as a two for one is that you do have this ability to communicate your experience in a way that I don't think other people are as good at. So you are a very, very good communicator. And because you're at a more junior level than maybe you, you would be if you just came in as an officer, you actually get to communicate with more people. So what's weird about the Coast Guard hierarchy is that the higher up you go, the more insulated and the more isolated that you sometimes get, right? And so we have a, it's, you know, it's, it's a pyramid. So the, the junior people, there's a lot more of, and it gets, you know, narrow and narrower at the top. So if you were at a, higher level, you probably wouldn't be engaged with so many junior people who really need to hear your personal message, I think. So I I really appreciate your influence that you have, you know, from your position within the within the division.
1: I appreciate that. That's actually that's a really profound way to think of it because when I decided I wanted to be an officer, you you have to ask yourself, what do you really want to do, right? Like everybody knows you're going to make more money. Most people forget that that's tied to more responsibility. They just want to make more money. Ultimately, what I came to is that the Coast Guard has done a lot for me. I attribute my success and recovery to the Coast Guard. I could not afford rehab on my own. Mm-hmm. I got the bill. I saw what insurance paid. I couldn't pay for that by myself. The Coast Guard is the fact is, is the reason I'm sober today because there is a policy in place. I would probably be sober if I weren't in the Coast Guard. I don't know. Could have gone any number of ways but i I attribute a lot to what the coast guard gave me and so when it was time to think about what i wanted to do and i wanted to be an officer what i ultimately decided was that i wanted to leave the biggest influence i wanted my influence to be greater i wanted to make the greatest change right Mm -hmm. in my head that meant being an officer because you had more influence you had more of a ripple effect as i described it um not my own original thought but that's kind of how i thought of it And so here I was thinking that as an 01 or an 02, I'm going to be putting these lasting policy changes into effect like I'm the commandant, right? That's not going to happen. The commandant being like the four-star general who runs the entire service. But I thought that was going to be the the impression I was going to leave. I want to be an officer so I can make a difference in the Coast Guard. You can't make a difference in the Coast Guard at this level. You can make a difference... in the lives of the people around you.
0: 100%, 100%.
1: But I can't enact any sort of policy changes. I thought I was going to have this sort of pull. And it's kind of profound to hear you put it in that manner because that is very accurate. It actually is counterintuitive, but the higher I would have gotten, the more I would have maybe had like policy impacts, right? Like maybe one day I can be a captain and I can rewrite the book on substance use and I can make the policy fit my narrative based on going through it firsthand but i'm far removed from the boots on the ground i'm far removed from the the third and second class petty officers who say hey that's relatable i was there as a second class right. and i need that and i've learned that i had the wrong idea for what impression i wanted to leave i have more influence now than what i originally thought i wanted right i wanted to leave service wide impacts what i really want is social mm-hmm. it's in, it's within the network of people i work in and i didn't I've never really just heard it the way you described it, but it's so true. Like at the lower level, I'm able to interact and engage with you guys, with other JOs. I also have the communication to go vertically and talk to O5s and O6s and be seen as a voice and a knowledgeable source mm-hmm. so I can use that platform. But they're not, it doesn't go both ways. They're not coming down to the lower enlisted right. junior officer level and having these conversations and these vulnerabilities to say, let's work through this right like they have people for that right and so i've kind of learned what my influence needs to be and what i what i envision my my lasting impression to be on the coast guard it's when i retire there's not going to be some like you know i remember the guy who made that policy like you know middle finger at him like (laughs) why did he make this such a bureaucratic thing no there's going to be a whole slew of people behind me yep who are like oh well, I remember we had this guy Mr. Raymond who trained us this way or I remember learning this from Mr. Raymond and this is how I'm teaching it and there's that long lineage of like just impact yeah. that you you know, you can't you can't get that any other way other than mm-hmm. that human interaction and yeah. like leaving that mark on people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean policy, you know, we can think about it abstractly that like yes, if you write a policy, you will impact people whether they want to be impacted or not. But you know you sharing your story means that you know i get to carry around your story with me other people get to carry around your story with them and who knows how useful that is to each individual who knows how useful that will be to share with other people right if they have their own subordinates who come to them and ask to self refer things like that so yeah i mean that personal impact i think is you know i mean you 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 don't know what the upper end of how important that could be You know to an individual um and how it spreads throughout yeah
1: i mean when people talk they're like you know you're talking to your friends and somebody says oh you should talk to mr raymond he's you know he's in recovery he's Mm -hmm. done that nobody ever says oh you should talk to captain so and so they wrote the book on substance use and policy like you don't even know who wrote that because it's signed by the commandant right? right it's got his name on it yeah you don't hear that they're not like hey yeah go go send this guy an email he wrote the substance use and abusage policy it's a 370 page document and he can answer your questions now they're like that's not relatable it's not tangible at all but you're like hey mr reeman he's down the hall go talk to him and the next thing you know there's just a candid conversation of like oh yeah i've been there Yeah. yeah i know what you're going through
0: yeah it's it's just weird that you know you would you would never expect that this is the exact right place that you should probably be and no. that's what you're in it. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, I
1: actually, I, I hate that saying, but if, because when I was in for early in recovery, uh, I was working with a guy, he had over 30 years of sober time and I would call him with my nonsense. And, and looking back now, they were, you know, such stupid problems, but I'm like, they're insurmountable. I don't know what to do. And he would say, you're exactly where you need to be. Yeah. And I would be livid. And I'm like, well, tell me how to get out of it. And he's like, but you're where you need to be. Why yeah. would you want to leave? And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs>
0: It's, it's, there's, there's such stoics, those people. I mean, they just are. They're, it's great. It's like, this is reality, man. <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. This is the
1: same guy I would say, like, I want what you have. And he's like, you can't have it. And I'm like, dude, what the, that's messed up. And he's like, you can make your own path. <laughs> yeah. But you can't have mine. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I, that's, all right.
0: Yeah. That's great.
1: Some fairy tale narrative. I'll learn one day.
0: We're, uh, so we're we're close to the hour already, sir. So, um, but I do want to talk about two things. Please. Um, so, uh, some of the things that I know about, AA is that removing something that is so habitual um, often needs to be replaced by, by something else. So can, do you have something that you've replaced drinking with? And if so, p- please tell us about. It.
1: Yeah. So when I, when I got out of rehab, it was May now. And when you're in those early stages of recovery, it's, it's all you can do to just exist. Right. And not drink. Like you're talking about removing like the thing that I needed essentially to exist, at least emotionally, I believe that. And so in the early stages, there was it, it was just exist. Like I mean, it was like go to work, work, run home, don't go past the bar, take a different way so I didn't run into anybody, lock myself in the house so I wouldn't leave again. Call today. But they they refer to it as sort of the the fog lifting. And after a few months, You start to get some clarity, like when you remove that substance for a little while, like you're saying, you start to get some mental clarity that you've never had before. And that's around the time that at least I really became aware of how much free time I had when you remove drinking. But I will say like... In the early stages, I used to be like, what am I going to do with all my free time? Like, I was this naysayer. And it's like, well, I'll I'll give you an example. I'm going to sleep because most people aren't up from 10 to 4 and then go to work at 6. So, there's that. Um, I I do sleep a lot better now, usually 7 to 8 hours because I'm not drinking for 6 of them. Um, But… It, you know, when that fog lifted and I started to sort of build a healthy lifestyle and now I'm sleeping through the night, I'm waking up to an alarm clock and I just got like three meals a day instead of one at the middle of the night. That's 400 4000 calories. Um, I started to kind of realize that I needed something. I needed something to clutch on, like hold on to. And so I actually discovered working out like I, I had dabbled here and there. I'd work out with some friends. Like I said, you would never think I was like running anywhere. But I was not overweight. I looked like I was probably doing some sort of activity. Um, so, uh, you know, in August of that same year, I went to a C school and I discovered fitness. And the instructor at my course was a fitness instructor. And he basically berated me until like three days into it. I finally agreed to go try it out. Um, and I was obsessed. Like I, I felt a physical response. Immediately, And I left there and I threw up. <laughs> so it was very reminiscent of drinking. And I was like, this is fair game. Okay. Like, let's go. Um, I went back the next day at lunch and I went every day at lunch until the end. I didn't go on the weekends because I didn't know what I was doing, but I couldn't wait until Monday to go again. In fact, I went to the exchange on base and bought workout clothes so I could keep going. Like I didn't have stuff. It was like working out and like, you know, jeans, like jorts and like a t-shirt <laughs> And so I discovered working out at the time I'm still smoking because they tell you not to give up smoking. Like you're not supposed to quit too much right. because they say, if you quit everything, something's coming back. You can't run the rest of this drinking. So I was still smoking about a pack a day. Wow. Um, and that was, that was a lot of like stress for me. Like I would, you know, I'd have a trigger and I would go smoke. Like I still needed that so that it wouldn't be drinking. But then I discovered fitness. And by the time I was, that was a five-week course. And by the time I got back, I had told my sponsor that I was working with at the time I was, like, Man, I came in, I got to quit the smoking thing. Like, I understand why, you know, you need to hold on to stuff. So you have like some vices so that you don't go back to drinking. But I was like, it is now impeding my ability to perform in this other thing I found that's actually good for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel like I can have these two conflicting, you know, um, interest. And so, he, you know, with his graces, like that's how into the program I was, I'm 26 years old, but with his graces, I said I have kicked smoking. You're like
0: are asking someone for permission to quit my, he's smoking. The,
1: he's the same age as me. Right. He was 26, he had just been sober for three years. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, that's how it works. I'm like, how did you do that? How yeah. are we the same age and you've got three years on me? Right. And there's a little bit of pride there too. Cause I'm like, oh man, like I got three months, you got three years, but it's like, he's my age. That's what I needed was somebody who has been there. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, yeah, I, th- I think it's safe to say you could quit smoking. And so I quit smoking and it it became not just fitness at this point but health like at that point i was like what is macronutrient dieting what is paleo dieting what is zone dieting what are all these things that people are talking about what's a calorie deficit and i self-taught all of this stuff and i started doing my bmr and i started calculating my caloric intake and i started tweaking my diet and adjusting my body mass and it became this new obsession and i was like Oh, I don't like the way I look. I'm going to adjust my calories and my macros and fix it. And I had something new to focus on. At the foundation, it was always fitness. And, you know, overall just health. Um, But it became so much more because I started to see in the big picture like how they all come together. And that's something that like now, nine years later, I still value. I still have that. I still loosely macro diet. I could still tell you within about a 200 calorie Um, range, what I eat today. I can ballpark how much protein and carbs I'm getting because I've been doing it for a decade. Mm -hmm. I still will make little tweaks and adjustments. But more than anything, I'm in the gym six days a week. I have to be there or I will start to feel a certain way. That's actually sort of my therapy, right? Like I, I need that. And since I discovered that in the absence of drinking, it has filled the void. So much so that Working out is healthy. The emotional response I have to not working out is probably not healthy. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But I will rationalize it every day of the week and I will justify it because it keeps me from drinking, right? Like I'm okay with that mental instability of being like, I didn't work out today. And there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of resentment there. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little disappointed in myself, maybe a little negative self-talk, but I'm like, but I'm not drinking. Like, if this is the worst behavior I'm exhibiting today, that's okay. And I'll go to the gym tomorrow first thing, and I'll get right. And that's usually what happens. I get I get in the gym, and and it's better. That's improved with time, too. With two kids and life in general, I've gotten better. I mean, in the early stages, there was a point where I was so obsessed with it that, like, I didn't take rest days. Mm-hmm. And if we were going to go, you, you'd say, hey, let's go do a seven-mile hike because we live in Alaska. We're going to go climb this mountain. And I would try to figure out like, okay, well, I need to also work out. So like, how can I make my workout complement a seven hour hike? Like it was insane. Mm-hmm. And now I can take days off and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Right around the four to five day mark is where that sort of negative self-talk comes in. But again, it I'm not drinking. So I, I, I justified as like a healthy obsession.
0: Um, you know, one of the things because I ha- I share a similar uh, I, well I have like hyper curious and I also have definitely have addictive personality issues myself so uh, a Getting into working out and you know being a gym rat and things like that, <laughs> things like that, was stuff that came out of my own life um, for different reasons. Uh, you know, I watched my grandfather die of diabetes over the course of a decade, and it and it was not fun. And knowing that I have an eighty percent chance of getting that if I don't do something about it, right? That that triggered something um, in in my life to make a change. Um, but I just found it was so interesting because I think the first conversation that we had was I had mentioned a workout program that I was doing that was like so obscure that maybe 17 other people <laughs> are likely doing it, but you had heard about it and you're like, oh yeah, tell me about that program. Cause I've looked at that guy before and I wanted to know what, what he was doing. So yeah, I just thought that that was, uh, <laughs> that was super interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not paid to be in the industry. I, I don't <laughs> compete. I don't get anything out of it. I have two kids now. I, I, I have a free pass at a dad bod, but I mentally <laughs> cannot permit myself to get there, but I do hours of research i know what all the new programs are i'm, I'm always yeah. interested in what the new the new fad diet is i don't do fad dieting but I, I need to for me i need to read up on it at this point i've i think i've i've sort of solidified myself as some a point in my life that people might even come to talk to me about fitness i have like, yeah. like I, I recognize yeah, yeah. that and so i almost take that as an obligation to understand what's going on because mm-hmm. you know I, I never tried keto but I talked to a lot of people about keto because I need to understand all facets of diet and health. And now I feel like maybe I'm going to be some ambassador to health right. and fitness. So I'm like, mm-hmm. well, you need to understand like what this program yeah. is. And so I, I'm in there, you know, I'm studying the newest thing coming out and trying to pick it apart and figuring out if it's for me or not.
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, having two kids and this is something that I'm not, uh, we, we've definitely talked about it before, but um, something that we haven't really gone into Um, you know, I'm, I'm a father myself. I find that being a father permeates every single thing that you do. Like, like, I don't think there's anything that you do at all, any moment of the day, pretty much that you have truly to yourself without, without thinking about what you're doing for your, I mean, we're here, we're at work, our kids aren't around, but we're here because of them. Right. Right. I mean, like that's a giant motivation for us being here, um, along with other personal reasons, but so what is it, what is being a father mean to you? Um, and you know, is that something that is this something that you think about? Is this something that, you know, comes up um, as just in your daily introspection?
1: All the time. And and to your point, I think when I'm not thinking about how what I'm doing relates to my children, those are when I find myself missing my children, right? Like my children will find a way <laughs> to permeate my mental, my headspace, right? It's like Either I recognize that what I'm doing is for them and they're my number one priority and I think about them finally. Or I realize that like an hour has gone by and I haven't looked at a picture or gotten a text update from the daycare and I'm missing them because I'm not prioritizing them as this is why I'm at work. And it's like, oh, I miss my kids. And they they just move back to the top again. Like priorities reshifted. But there's so much that goes into being a, a father for me, especially with, you know, what we talked about with my childhood. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversations that I have with my wife that are about the kind of man I'm going to be strictly based on the absence of what I believe a father should be, right? Like, or, or based on the absence that existed in my life of a father, um, Yeah, I didn't know the first thing about being a father. I didn't, nobody, I don't think anybody's prepared for it. You you plan to have kids and you kind of time it out. But then when you're in the hospital and the kid comes out, you know what you're doing. I read the books. I read her books. I didn't know what I was doing. You
0: could throw them all away as soon as that kid comes out. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And then you're in the hospital and you're like, oh God, they're going to take the kid for a few hours. Okay, we're going to get by. And then you get home. And I remember sitting in the car seat in the middle of the floor and I'm like, what do we do now? The only thing I knew and, and I remember having these thoughts again, this sort of like introspection. Um, the only thing I knew is what I didn't want to do. Yeah, Like I, I knew what I was not going to do as a father and that's it. So it at least gave me a starting point to be like, well, okay, well don't do that. Like shit, like yeah. at least hang out, like be there <laughs> for starters. Um, but no, and, and like I learned as I got older too, like, you know, I always... I always really felt the physical absence of my father but the older i got and the more i reflected on that time in my life the more i recognized that there was an emotional absence as well mm-hmm. that i didn't acknowledge for a long time and so again that was a like okay well don't do that like i need to be emotionally present right and for me that means like i'm gonna play with my kid let me leave my phone in the other room let me not check my emails while he's roaring his dinosaur not looking right and so like these are little things that i'm figuring out along the way that i'm like okay well I didn't have that. So I'm going to give it to him. Being a father though is hands down. That's it. that That is self-actualization. That is my purpose. That's what I'm here for. That transcends everything else. And it is also the thing that brings me the most joy. I love my wife. She knows she's number three now. <laughs> My children are number two and my sobriety is number one. And nobody in my household would ever argue with that because my wife will tell you if if sobriety wasn't number one, there there wouldn't be a wife either. Yeah. You lose two and three. Right. But she knows, you know, and I I joke with her all the time, but like that's really my family, them in general, the three of them, that's, that's my purpose. And and everything I do is for them. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you take a job you don't like. You put on a smile so your kid doesn't have to think they need to grow up and do a job they don't like. You know, I want them to have freedoms I didn't have. I didn't wanna join the Coast Guard. I joined, right? Like I didn't have a plan. I barely graduated high school. What are you gonna do? You know, I'm here because professional skateboarder didn't work. And so I, my best friend joined the Coast Guard. My father was 30 years army and I went to the two of them and my best friend said, yeah, it's pretty chill. I got my own apartment and they pay for it. Like nobody else at 18 had that. And my father said, don't join the army, my stepfather. He said, maybe you should look into the Coast Guard. Dustin's doing pretty good. And Dustin said, yeah, it's pretty chill. And I was like, all right, cool. That sounds fun. And here I am, like 16 years later.
0: I th- I think uh, I think you're better for it now, though. A hundred percent, I mean, you, yeah. may, you might not be as uh, successful as a skateboarder, but. No. Yeah.
1: No, I would have already phased out. I mean, the guys my age are, I mean, Tony Hawk just broke his femur. So, I mean, what did I have going for me? He
0: was walking four <laughs> days later, though. Did you see that? Yeah,
1: I did. On his on his half pipe like he's not just walking down this side. he's like I'm gonna walk on the half pipe so everybody knows like
0: this is a superhero
1: yeah so you know <laughs> if, if that's Tony Hawk what did I have gone for me it's,
0: if I break my femur just put me down send me to the glue factory I'm not I'm gonna, done I'm not gonna
1: make it I've sprained ankles and and stayed on my couch for a month <laughs> like this this is I'm not I'm well, I'm built different I'm not cut out for it but yeah no it's I mean it's just magical like it really is it, it's just so hard to describe in words and and something changes like you go about living your life and i don't feel like i'm any different i don't feel like i changed as a Mm -hmm. person but something changed yeah like something in me is different since having kids
0: yeah i i mean you know i joined the coast guard later in life i joined when i was 27 um and i did not have uh my daughter yet and i joined because i wanted to make a difference right and there are plenty of people who i know that are incredible public servants that work within the coast guard so much so that they have either set aside until much later or are just decided not to have kids that they are going to just fully give all of their time and mental energy into the coast guard and i i respect those people a, a ton because it's it's just an incredible i think you know personal sacrifice that they're making for the greater good and You know, when I got married, you know, my wife, she really wanted to have, have kids. And, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't like crazy about it, but I was like, yeah, okay. And, um, you know, it was like, it was like an evolutionary switch just like went off in the back of my head like as soon as my kid was born I just like I don't know what it was but like it just became instantly my obsession and instantly at like I just put on these glasses that were was like the whole world is now viewed through how that kid will grow up and what her world will, will be like and everything that I do needs to ensure her success and also that we leave the world a better place for her and we'll, we'll whoever she decides you know to marry and what what kids if she decides to have kids you know what their lives are going to be like and you start looking multi-generationally and uh i if per just my personal um perspective if i didn't have a kid i don't think i was that um you know i, I could look that far forward i think i was way more selfish than i even knew until i until i had a kid so
1: yeah i mean i i think it's I think it's true for me as well i i I know how i was you know even with my old lifestyle um in alcoholism you know i was number one you know removing that and you know having a few years with my wife and just her and i there's no way that i would have had like you said the the bigger picture perspective of like a lasting legacy right like i would have just lived for satisfaction for her and I right Mm -hmm. whatever the next thing is let's enjoy our working lives so we can retire let's enjoy retirement so we can that's it like retire have fun Mm -hmm. like sit on the porch and reflect and we would have lived a great life I'm sure and we would have had fond memories but I wouldn't have had that vision like you're saying that long-term vision and that that idea of legacy and you know that sort of that impact really more than anything that impact and I think it comes back to just wanting to do something for other people. And I, for me, the highest form of that is for my children. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to do the most that I can for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, sir. So uh, I'm going to move on to the last uh, portion of this, this is going to be a rapid fire. Okay. Um, and we'll, we'll do a couple cause I think, I think we're pretty over time, <laughs> but that's all right. That's uh, my th- fault. This has been fun. No, no, no. This has been great. And I appreciate all your time, sir. Just want to be uh, respectful of it. So, um, we'll do, we'll do a couple of these first off, uh, and, and this is a rapid fire, but your, your answers don't have to be rapid. Um, what is your, what does your morning ritual look, look like? So what time does your alarm clock go off? And then what are the things that you do in between that and when you come to work?
1: Okay. So, there's two ways to answer that. There's my ideal morning, and then there's what happens sometimes most days of the week, sometimes the minority of the week, Uh, but there are two different types of mornings. The ideal morning, I'm up an hour before whatever obligation I have or whenever I need to leave the house. It starts with coffee, a little bit of journaling, just what's on my mind, maybe looking at my day. And then usually 10 minutes of just sh- meditation, quiet, nothing guided, just quiet meditation and really sort of visualizing the day. What I know is going to come, how it's going to sort of play out.
0: Okay. So hang on. So your, the time you wake up adjusts just depending on what you have going on that day.
1: It does. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll do like an hour back from, Yeah. I need to leave at seven. I'm going to get up at six. Okay. Um, and oh, when
0: and when you journal, do you have prompts? Is there a format that you follow every day? Is this a handwritten journal? Is this on, uh, do you use a computer?
1: It's handwritten, and so up until about a week ago, it's been a blank journal, and I just free flow. Uh, usually, there are like things that make it every day. Like I usually will say three things I'm grateful for, and then I say I read this book. The one thing. And so, it'll say, three things I'm grateful for, and then it'll say, what's my one thing for today? And that, the whole premise of that book was that we tend to over-prioritize, like, list, and, like, just satisfactorily checking everything off the list, and we forget that there should be, like, one Mm. important thing that needs to be accomplished. And it's not, like, go to the gym, like, that's just every day. It'll be, like, like, my one thing for today would be this, like, a successful podcast, right? Mm. Like, I need that to happen above everything else. I'll build it around this obligation and so those four lines of text are in all my blank pages and then if there's room for some free flow or if something comes off like from the meditation where i'm like write that down uh, i will a week ago i purchased this new thing that i saw on instagram through behavioral targeting they were like oh you might like this and then i was like oh i like that and then i was like that's 50 bucks i won't get back but what was it it's a journal with prompts so it's called I'm, i'm not gonna say the name because this Is not not an an endorsement. Yeah, (laughs) Let's take a break from our sponsor. I'm pretty sure I know which one you're talking about though. (laughs) But I purchased this. And so now I'm trying this new thing that it prompts, you know, let's check in. How are you feeling? Check a box. What are you going to accomplish today? It's some of the same stuff, but... There are some extra things that I wouldn't normally do. So I'm, I'm trying this out for a little bit to see how it goes. But for majority of my life, it's been a blank journal.
0: And uh, and then so you meditate. You said you don't listen to anything or follow anything. So is it, do you follow your breath? Is it just a mind clearing exercise? Like what it, What are you doing when you're actually meditating?
1: It's not all or not. Sometimes I will listen to something. Like I'll put in like a, I'll pick a topic and put in, you know, mindfulness sometimes
0: like just like a youtube YouTube, video thing
1: yeah and i'll find one that's got you know 10 minutes no ads and it's a decent topic um but a lot of times what i find to be more beneficial is just just sit quietly eyes closed head down visualizing my day how it's gonna go I try to focus on my breathing if i get distracted i try to come back to my breathing just the normal like my mind runs and that's okay i try to reel it in and then usually at the end of the 10 minutes i get like my watch beeps or something and i'm like all right i'm i'm good to go okay um
0: so you said uh uh, then you said coffee
1: coffee before yeah i'm sipping my coffee while i'm journaling doing that what kind of
0: coffee
1: just I think it's Starbucks medium blend or something. Do you
0: do pour over? Do you do it out of a, just a normal drip? No, it's just a
1: drip. We just, we, the only thing we do is we grind our own just the morning of grind it, drip coffee. Um, and then, yeah, like by the time the, you know, I'm done meditating, it's kind of like, start getting your stuff together, start packing your bag. One of the things that I, I took away from my recovery. Somebody told me early on, like I used to like roll, I used to sleep, because I was partying until really late. So, I would go to bed like on the couch and when I was wearing partying. And I, I mean, I'm not even lying. Like I would roll off the couch or my bed and be out the front door within five minutes in the same clothes. Like there was no lag time. That's not a good way to live. That's also like, that's when traffic all of a sudden is the worst and everybody's a terrible driver and I'm doing 80 on the, the median so I can get to work on time. And all of a sudden, I learned in recovery, like, hey, maybe just take your time in the morning and don't rush. And now I can sit in traffic because there's a buffer in my work time. Like, you know, I can, I can take my time getting out. I'm not rushed. There's, you know, all of a sudden I don't have to give the finger to people on the road because everything's okay. Like, it's cool. I'm, I'm chill, whatever. Um, so I really, I, I really value that. And I, I find, you know, a benefit in like having that, setting that pace early on. That is the ideal morning though. So with two kids, there's also The other morning, which is, you know, some days my son just wakes me up crying and it's time to go. And you kind of fill in where you can the things that are important to me. Um, But I still try to get them in there. So, like, I'll get him ready. We're moving. But not with that sense of urgency of like, Oh my God, we're behind schedule. Like mm-hmm. it, you got to like set the pace. You got to set the tone and we'll just kind of go through the morning. Maybe I'll get a chance to sip my coffee and write while he's, you know, eating his breakfast. I'll try to throw those in there, but it's not the same, you know, one hour of reflective time by myself. So there are two types of mornings.
0: Yeah. Totally, uh, yeah. totally understand how kids can change your entire day starting yeah. from minute one.
1: <laughs> and I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, I I'll make time for those things, but you know, I don't want to ever miss time with my kids. I'm not going to tell him to go back to sleep so I can meditate. <laughs> he wouldn't anyway.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, okay, two more questions. Yeah, let's go. You said you're 35? 35. 35. So if you could go back and tell your 19-year-old self anything, what would it be?
1: You have options. You have options. This worked out great. It's been a successful career. It's been very rewarding. I've got a lot of lasting friendships. It's been great for my family. Like I said, I didn't feel like I had options. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. do good in high school. I had no college. And this was kind of the last stop for me. Was, what it was gonna be the military. And then two very influential people in my life said the Coast Guard and here I am. Um, if somebody had told me that I had options or that I could have gone to college still mm-hmm. and you know, done like a state community college, things might have been different.
0: What would you have done?
1: I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, in, yeah. in that time frame, there was a brief window where I realized that the caliber of skateboarder was was exceeding my capability. And I, for like six months, told people I was going to be a rally cost driver. And then I didn't realize like that. That's like a millionaire hobby. Not really an <laughs> you occupation. You got to be born rich yeah. for that. You don't just jump in. You're like, oh, this guy's a decent driver. Like, let's give him a car and a team. But I was like, well, that's what I really want to do because I like driving also. Like, yeah, that makes sense. But it's hard to say because I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, yeah. I think, I think I would have enjoyed getting into like maybe something within the science community, like maybe meteorology, maybe like getting into NOAA. Like if I had, you yeah. know, gone to school and done like I, you know, the, the storm chasing and tracking and stuff like that. That's that kind of excites me. That's Uh, pretty cool. But it's Uh, hard to say.
0: I have a a little skateboard anecdote. Uh, When I was 16... I, I was also trying to, I was never, I never had any aspirations to be a professional skateboarder, but I ran around with a lot of skater kids and I was 16. I was bussing tables at a red lobster and there were two kids that also skated. And I remember going and skating with them. And I had been skating for like maybe two months or something like that. And I couldn't kick flip. I mean, I still didn't know how to do it. And I remember this one kid who was, he had, he did have aspirations to be like a professional skateboarder. And he was like, you can't, you can't kickflip dude like you can you can ollie like that's it and i was like yeah man i was like i've tried i just keep like falling or whatever and he's like most kids these days are kickflipping by the afternoon like (laughs) like you you get on the skateboard you ollie the first time and then it takes three practice tries and you get the kickflip like why can't you do this (laughs) i know i just i realized right then i not do not have the aptitude for this sport at all
1: yeah i remember like in my group of friends, you know, I was, I was jumping off big stuff and I would always jump off the biggest thing. Cause I didn't have any like sort of remorse, but, um, but I also, you know, quote unquote technical abilities too. I was the only one who could like, we'd go to like skate these small blocks and I'd be the only one doing nose manuals. Everybody else is trying to do manuals and like, oh man, you're so technical. <laughs> and, but like kids are doing like, you're talking about like 16 year olds who are doing like, you know kickflip backside lip slides on rails that are like double their height and i'm just like wait a minute like i'm not
0: that's crazy i'm not willing
1: to do that (laughs) i can't comprehend but i'm like i'm gonna be pro because in my small group of people
0: you're the best one yeah yeah and
1: they're like they're they're feeding this they're like yeah you should jump off something higher and it's like (laughs) but i'm like no i don't i don't know that i have what it takes
0: okay uh last question sir um if you could have dinner with anyone um, and you can, you can feel free to add, uh, two or three, but, it, Martin
1: Luther King. Okay. Junior. Really? Absolutely. Uh, why? I mean, obviously he got his principles from other people, but I think his application is just, it, it just transcends his time. Like it, it's timeless, right? Like think about, and I know where he got his inspiration from, and I know that there was a lot of difficulty um in those motivations that you know in the people that he looked up to but i just think about that that jim crow era and what Mm. martin luther king was doing and the way that he was so steadfast in his belief and his response in everything he just he didn't just have a dream he believed it despite all evidence to the contrary that that dream would ever be a reality including you know keeping my political opinions out of it but including today in 2022 yeah. when that is still in question like did we achieve that dream at no. all are we closer or are we getting further away but yeah. at the time like in the throes of it in that era and he's like no this is the way trust me and i'm just blown away by somebody to maintain that steadfast approach mm-hmm. despite all of the controversy the animosity the the physical abuse, the the legal abuse, and I just can't. I I mean, I it worked. You know, with the stuff he went through, I think he made lasting changes. But he is, without a doubt, probably top three, if not my favorite historical figure.
0: We, uh, you know, we <clears throat> we learn about Martin Luther King from a really young age. Like, you know, in school, uh, my daughter, uh, she's in first grade, right? Like that. That's already come up in her curriculum, and. You know, I think when you're when you're a kid and you learn about Martin Luther King, it's like, yeah, like he's he's a obviously a really great man and like did a lot of really great things, but it wasn't until I was older and was reading more biographies on him or or, or books that he had written written that I was like, this guy was incredibly brave. Like it is it is so gnarly to think about how brave you would have to be to be that public of a figure going so against the establishment, I mean, yeah, like, so, you know, Martin Luther King got assassinated. The only thing that's shocking is that, like, how long he went, right? I mean, like- It didn't happen sooner. Right. That seems that seems like such a crazy thing to yeah. say, but, but it really, like, thinking about everything about that time period, he was by far one of the bravest human beings to ever- to be walking the earth.
1: Yeah. And I don't mean it in a negative sense. Like, I can't believe it didn't happen sooner. I mean, yeah, like, course. he 100% was there, like, no, you should not be there. And he's 100% like, no, I will be there. This is my thing. I'm the face of this. I'm the face of this group. And he's locking arms and is in the front line center,
0: Yeah,
1: you know, during marches. Right. He's standing on the corner, you know, having these discussions, these congregations and, yeah. you know, these, uh, you know, here come the law enforcement to just pummel him. And it's like, he didn't hide. Yeah he went to the next one and it just, it blows my mind. Um, You know, I I think one of the other things too, that's really big on, on his impact is how much it influenced other movements, right? Like he had his belief. There were, there were parallel movements happening at that time. There were a lot of different trains of thought to how we get civil rights, you know, on the board. And he had his way of doing things that he was passionate about. It's no secret that there are a lot of other ways. And there was a lot of, animosity and there's a lot of you know eye for an eye type mentality but ultimately if you follow it and if you read up on some of the other leaders of those movements and stuff you realize there were a lot of sit downs with Martin Luther King there was a lot of influence from Martin Luther King a lot of people came over to his side that were once yeah no that's a huge thing too yeah absolutely no this is not the way it's never going to work peacefully and then later in life you're like you're hearing about these Mm. these joint efforts and these sit downs with people and you're like, oh, wow, like people came around. He never lost stride. He mm-hmm. never changed course, never faltered. He just maintained. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I think it did work. I think we've, we've come a long way. I think we have a long way to go. I wish that he had more time on this, this earth. Um, and I would love to sit down with him that, you know, I, I almost cut you off to answer because it's such an easy answer for me. Um, but I would also love that something something like that today too it's it's interesting that we talked about self-actualization in maslow and in text a lot of times mlk is one of the few references of actually achieving self-actualization that people reference yeah it's one of the few tangible you know pieces of evidence that that it is achievable for someone
0: yeah
1: and i think that we need some you know i i feel like we need that influence which is why I would love to just, you know, have somebody like that around today.
0: Yeah. Well, sir, I think, I think that's good. I think we'll, go, I think we'll call it, uh, call it there. Um, I mean, this was such a great conversation. Uh, definitely went over the hour. I appreciate you giving, a giving more of your time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to the sponsors, Mind Journal, 30 day free trial. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to journal and if you're like me and you don't like a blank journal, Mind Journal has all the prompts to keep you on, on point. Shout outs to the green egg, uh, the only grill for
0: dads. (laughs) Uh, uh, I guess I'll say, as we always say at the end of our uh, conversations that we have, we fixed it. We solved all the world's problems. So, uh, so again, I uh, thank you so much for your time, sir.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking me to do this. This was a blast.
0: Thanks again to Mr. Raymond and thanks to quantum jazz for the music in this episode. If you'd like to read the show notes, they can be found at joshlane.substack.com. If you'd like to drop me a line, I'm at joshlane on Twitter or joshlane2 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.